You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wyatt, Terry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, JT Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Robin Mock, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm super excited to have Nola Nash on the show with me today. She has a phenomenal new book. It's called Crescent City Sin. It's the second book in the Crescent City series. And, uh, you know, if if you love urban fantasy and, you know, the the idea of things being behind things, uh, you're really going to love this series. Welcome to the show, Nola. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm excited to have you. Uh, Nola, we begin each show with the same question. And that question is, what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller? I think the first memory of wanting to be a writer or a storyteller is probably when I was very young. And I think most authors kind of have that same that same comment, I suppose. We all know when we're little. And I think it's because I think writers are just wired differently. I think we were always writers. We just, some of this may take a little longer to find that out. Um, my mom read to me all the time when I was very small. We didn't watch TV very much. And so I think as a result, I would tell stories to my stuffed animals and just anybody because I had lots of stories to tell. It wasn't until I was a lot older, though, that I decided to be a writer and write them down. I was actually an adult. I had three small kids. And I said, you know, I've got stories to tell. And I think it's time they made it onto paper. But being a storyteller was something that I had done since I was very little. And like I said, I, I think we're all all writers are probably born writers. We just don't always know it right at the very beginning. I I tend to agree with you. I think um, I, I think there's uh, there's something innate in storytellers that, you know, will eventually come out. Um, you know, it, it may take different forms with different people, but um, there's there's just something uh, about us that's that's wired a little different. Uh, maybe that's good. Maybe that's bad. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> I think ultimately it's a good thing. And, you know, yeah. I have something that sits on my dresser that my mom gave me that said you will be too much for some people. Those are not your people. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think that that's that's kind of all writers. You know, we may be too much for some people. But those are not our people. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's actually a perfect description. Um, you know, find your tribe, find your who exactly. your people are. And that's the most important thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Nola, you. You knew from an early age that you were going to tell stories, that you were going to write books. Um, how did that play out for you? Um, do, do I understand right that you, uh, you know, by day are a middle school English teacher? I am. I absolutely am. So I get to play with other people's stories all day. Right, right. My uh, my oldest son is a seventh grade or is a sixth grade. I can never keep it straight. Uh, English teacher. And uh, <laughs> some of the stories he comes over and, and tells me are, are you know, just precious. Um, but, you know, that, that's a that's a really unique um, age group of kids, uh, you know, yes. to and, and when you get to see that, when you get to recognize that one kid in your class, 
Um, you know, like like so many of us have great stories of English teachers who encouraged us and lit a fire in us. It, it's fun to see him getting to recognize that in other kids. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love those moments, those moments where kids who didn't know they were writers realize that they are. Right. Um, you you mentioned that, that your mom gave you that that uh, thing about, you know, finding your people. Uh, did she recognize that that you had this storytelling gene inside you? I think she always did. I mean, we were we were a theater family and my mom performed in place. I performed in place. My dad built sets and designed lights. And, you know, if one of us was not on stage, we were backstage. And so I think we we performed stories long before, you know, anybody kind of saw me as, as a writer. I think she always saw, you know, I was good at theater because I got the story behind it. I got the characters behind it and I enjoyed developing that part of it. And I mean, that's really what a play is. It's a storytelling device. It's just simply performed as opposed to written and and read. And so I think she always saw that storyteller in me in that way. She knew I was a good writer. She knew I enjoyed writing and I loved to read and I had stories to tell. Um, but she was kind of like me and, and didn't really realize that that true writer in me until I was older. I think she always saw it as something that was a great hobby and a great pastime. And it made me good at at theater, good at, you know, relating to other people, because I always kind of imagined the stories that they had to tell. You know, I, I always am careful with my kids when I say, you know, don't judge people, you don't know their story. And, you know, that's, that's always been a part of me. So I think she saw the creative person in me long before she realized specifically that it was a writer. Do, as someone who um, uh, has has a theater background, um, who now writes prose, um, do you do you see a connection there? I, I have a lot of friends who uh, were frustrated actors or maybe uh, frustrated um, directors who now write prose, and uh, some of the the most interesting you know conversations we've had about it are about. Uh, taking those frustrations um, out of the the collaborative space and and now you are in complete control um, of the story and how it plays out. Do do you feel that? I do. And I I think in many ways, having my family all involved in different parts of theater kind of gave me a, a broad perspective on the plays and what I could and couldn't control. And, you know, there were a lot of things that I thought should be done differently with a set or with costume design, or, you know, that line is really weird. Why do I have to say it that way? And so it is kind of fun to be in complete control over that. I mean, I spent many, many nights up at the theater, helping my dad build sets. You know, he would be like, you know, hold this wall while I you know, do this to it, or here, go wallpaper that, go paint that. And I didn't always like the choices <laughs> that I was like, no, no, I would not have done it this way. So yeah, I think that there is something to be said about having complete control over that. And honestly, there's just something to be said in you know life in general, in having complete control over the story and the setting and the people. I mean, I don't think you necessarily have to have come from a theater background to really appreciate that. I, I think, especially, you know, in times like this, wouldn't it be nice to be able to seize control and do it your way? <laughs> so I, I love having that aspect about writing is 
I get to create everything I want. Now I do feel like my stories and my characters tend to run away with me and like, like I'm kind of trailing behind going, where are we going? <laughs> what are, why are we doing this? Because the stories do tend to kind of tell themselves in a lot of ways. And, you know, I, I'm not, not a planner by any means. I'm an outliner. And then I kind of just let the story take me where it's going to take me. But I do ultimately get to make those choices. And that is definitely something I never got to do on stage. However, as a teacher, I did start directing the school plays and musicals. And so I have gotten to do both sides of it. Um, I didn't get to write them, but I did get to control a bit more in that respect. Now, you said that you're not a planner, but you are an outliner. Um, some people consider that um, the same thing. How do you differentiate between the, you know, planning a book out or, you know, thinking through an outline of, uh, you know, maybe the big points or, or, or how, how do you differentiate? I don't plan by chapter or, you know, things like that. It's like I, I need this to happen, but I'm not going to dictate how it happens. It's kind of like, let those characters in the stories, let it naturally evolve. And we may get to this point at some point, but I'm not going to say this is how I'm going to get from point A to point B. I'm not one of those people that has the big bulletin board at home and the color coded index cards where everything's kind of mapped out and all they are doing is fleshing out the details. When I say outline, it's a very loose outline. It's I, I like this particular part of this scene here, this character. I want to develop that a little bit. I need them to get to this point, but I don't always get to those same points the same way that I think that I would. I allow myself a lot of fluidity in that. And if I start out with an outline and it goes totally sideways by the second chapter, then I keep going sideways because I know that's the place that it needs to be. So I, I don't have the board at home with all the, the, you know, the plotting and the, you know, moving index cards around and things like some people do. I can't do that. I, I can't focus that way. It's it's too rigid for me. And I guess that's, you know, the the creative side of me. I don't know. I did a scrapbook. <laughs> my my research and my writing in a way that I can kind of like, here's what I, here's some stuff that needs to go in the book. And I, I guess it's planning in a way because I know the types of things that I need to put in there. You know, I write a lot of historical fiction or fiction that has history in it. And so I need the research. So I know what types of things to research, but how I'm going to use that, I don't really know um, until I get into the writing and I let the story evolve on its own. So when I say outline, let's, let's use that in the loosest term possible. <laughs> So, so you do like to think the story through before mm -hmm. writing, um, but it, it, am I getting this straight that, that it's more of helping you to understand the story and mm -hmm. maybe the bigger picture so that, uh, so that you have some direction when you sit down to write, even though it's, it's maybe not, um, you know, hard and fast rule set. Yeah. It's kind of like using a paper map. Instead of Google Maps, you know, Google Maps sure. may tell you step by step how to get there. For me, the paper map is going to give me, you know, here's my destination. Here's where I am. And look at all of these different ways I could go and get there, you know, and I kind of just wander those routes. And sometimes they take a side street and that's fine, too. And I kind of follow that side street and I can get there from this direction now. So it's more having a starting point and a destination and the things that happen along the way tend to be a bit more organic. I like that description, the, the difference between um, looking at a map, uh, a physical map, mm -hmm. as opposed to the turn by turn GPS directions. Yeah. I, I really like 
how that breaks down. Um, so Nola, what was, uh, when did you decide to write your first novel and, um, was Crescent City Moon your first novel or were there others before that? Actually, the one that I wrote first, that, I, that the story I truly wanted to tell is being launched in the spring, reimagined and reworked. Um, it was one that I love the story. I love the characters. I didn't have the experience to write it well. And I left out like a point of view that needed to be in there. I kind of kept it focused too much on one character. It was a great growth exercise, but it was ultimately not the novel that it needed to be. But I learned a lot through doing that. I learned a lot through pitching that and getting some feedback on it that I was hesitant to take it first. And, you know, let's be honest, nobody likes it when you criticize their child. And I was real defensive thinking that I had done everything the way that it needed to be done. And it wasn't until I said, well, I'm going to put that aside because, you know, clearly that's that's not the one that needs to be written now. And I didn't write for a while. And then I had the idea for Crescent City Moon. And I said, all right. This is something I'm passionate about. I've learned some lessons from that first one. Now let's work on this, taking all of those things into account and you know, make it the book I'm truly passionate about with things included in it that I'm truly passionate about. And let's see where that goes. And it was a much better book for the learning process of the first one. Now, I did take that, that first book and reworked it and, you know, almost essentially kind of deconstructed it and reconstructed it and added a whole lot of, you know, here's a whole other wing over here in this novel house. And now it's a book that I'm incredibly proud of, but had I not failed at it first, I don't think there even would be a Crescent City Moon because that idea came more out of writing out of passion for something as opposed to writing because there was a story. I think you need both. I think you need the story and the passion. And I found the passion with that book after I kind of learned all of those lessons. And so now it's coming out and like I said, in the spring and um, it's called Sylvie's pen and it's the first in, in the Sylvie series. And I'm passionate about it now, but that ultimately was the precursor to Crescent city moon. And I shifted focus. I mean, they're both set in New Orleans. They're set in different time periods. Um, Sylvie's pen is true historical fiction. There's no paranormal elements in it whatsoever. But the magic and the mystery of New Orleans kind of tugged at me and said, you know, let's tell a darker tale. Let's weave these things in that you're passionate about and, and see where the story goes. And so taking the same setting and looking at it through a different lens is what ultimately birthed that next series of the Crescent City series. You know, you could have a series based in New Orleans and and not have any paranormal elements, and it's still going to be a weird New Orleans story. <laughs> <laughs> and this one is, I mean, the Sylvie's Pen story is is truly weird, too. <laughs> I mean, it, it's funny, and the Crescent City series is anything but. I mean, it, there's a couple of light moments in it every now and then. There's something funny that's said, and even our, our villain is funny from time to time. But, you know, the Sylvie's Pen series is a bit more like the um, Victorian romances, you know, the Georgette Heyer books and, you know, lots of innuendo, missed connections, sass and all of those things. But you mix that in with New Orleans culture and it's it's its own beast. And it's a lot of fun. 
was a lot of fun to write, especially the second time kind of going through and, and adding more of those things that I loved so much about the city and some of the characters that I created. Um, but yeah, you're exactly right. You could write books about New Orleans and they're always going to be different and different time periods in New Orleans and different, just like a, a different lens between the magical lens and just the high society lens or, you know, the, the more kind of gritty poverty side of things. And it's so diverse a city, not just in population, but in stories and history and things that it can tell you that if you really take a look at New Orleans under a microscope, you're going to see so much that you could never wrap your head around and, and so much that you wouldn't see anywhere else, that it, it takes a lot of time to kind of get to know the city and find what it is that speaks to you to write about. And, you know, I've chosen an interesting time period in New Orleans that a lot of, not a lot of people, you know, think about as a time period to write about. And I mean, the Crescent City series starts in 1829. And, you know, that's kind of an odd time to write about. You tend to think more, you know, jazz and, you know, the speakeasies and red light district, you know, all of that stuff with New Orleans, or you think, you know, civil war, antebellum time and, you know, bringing it back to 1830s was an interesting time period to work with because there was a lot happening, a lot changing, but a whole lot of old traditions that were still being clung very tightly to. And so it was fun to work with all of that. You know, when you're thinking about the 1820s, 1830s, you are, you know, barely one generation separated from the founding of our nation. Mm -hmm. um, but so much happened in that 50, 60, 70 year period. Um, and, and if you were to look at those, it almost seems like, um, like two different worlds, uh, you know, from, from those two time periods, mm -hmm. um, what was happening in, in New Orleans, uh, ar around this time, what was it that fascinated you, um, that you knew that you had to write about this time period? I think it had a lot to do with what was allowed, in that time period that was not necessarily accepted in other parts of the South or anywhere else. Um, there were a lot of freedoms in the city of New Orleans, um, religion-wise, um, a lot of freedoms given even to slaves in the city of New Orleans that would not have been given anywhere else. And so there was a very distinct mixing of culture in that city that, you know, as time marched on closer to the Civil War was restricted quite a bit. And so you had this beautiful tapestry of beliefs of, you know, spiritual beliefs, the magic and, you know, the, the high society that really collided with kind of the, the grittier side of the city that was just blocks away in the warehouse district. And it, it's fun to to kind of explore all of that that was going on and then you've got you know so much undeveloped land around the city at that time you know that it was it was very difficult to even get from new orleans to baton rouge because of the vast swamp land that was between the two and so there's a lot of wilderness a lot of wild you know land and country that you can just explore in the swamps and the mystery that can happen there because it's very hard to get in and out and lots of things would go on in that area. And, you know, 
even in the 19 in the 1850s where the Sylvia series is that you know there's a, a yellow fever epidemic in 1853 that just really wiped out the population in this city and they would use the swamps to bury people and so now we've got the, the haunted swamp legends are coming up and so these you know this 20 year gap you know between 1830s when we set you know, we begin the Crescent City series and then when Sylvia's pen starts in 1850 you know, there's there's some interesting things going on there. There's also a lot of development in that 20 years with the types of machinery and things that were being used in, in plantation sugar production and a lot of money being made and lost very quickly, depending on the weather. And so there's a lot of tension and also a lot of of opulence that you can kind of build with. And, and there's an interesting juxtaposition between all of that stuff. And so it, it makes for an interesting setting and an interesting time period to be able to play with all of those various strings as you're, you're tying it all together into one neat novel. So when you started thinking about uh, what would become the Crescent City series, what, what came to you first? What was that first idea that, uh, that you knew was going to grow into the story it became? The first idea, I think, came from thinking, what is it about New Orleans that I love most? And then not really being able to decide. Is it the French Quarter and the opulence and the architecture and you know all of those things and the stories of those people that lived there? Is it the magic and the voodoo and the acceptance of those things? And, you know, or was it the mystery of the swamps? Was it the, you know, the that rock that the Catholic church was that the city was built on and kind of the old traditions. And then I said, what if it like the city all mixed together? Maybe it's not one of those things. Maybe it's all of those things that make me love that city so much. And what would happen if they all collided? And that's sort of where it came from. And so it was really the city itself. It was the setting and all of those things that I loved about the city itself that set the tone for the story. And then came Celine. And so our bad guy, our villain in the story, she's just wicked. I mean, through and through. <laughs> and yet there's so much to her. And that was kind of the fun thing to develop with her in the Crescent City Sin book was the rest of her story because we we meet her in a very current situation in Crescent City Moon, but we learn more about how she got there in Crescent City Sin. And so she is actually a character with a lot of depth that you don't realize at first. You just think all she is is wicked and terrible and mean. And she is. She's horrible. But she was also a lot of fun to write. And it's one of those things that when you have a character like that, that you can develop, it's kind of fun to tap into your own dark side and like say the things that you know you would never say. Like you want to say something like that to somebody. Well, I can't actually say that. That would be a horrible thing to say, no matter how much I might think it, you know, kind of sarcastically. But ooh, I know who can say it. So Lynn can say that. <laughs> it's like You take your frustrations out on other things using a character like that. And I had so much fun writing her. I mean, I never felt like I became her or anything, but she's definitely, um, she's definitely one of the, the, you know, it's always fun to, to write the villains, to read the villains, to watch the villains. I'm always drawn to the villains and I would just always love their stories. You know, the good guys are great and they can have their own flaws and their own stories. But for me, it was rooted 
around her and kind of her story and what she wanted and what she would do to get it and how vile she could be to get that one thing, what she would sacrifice, um, you know, and including her own family to, to get what she thought was going to make her happy finally. And, you know, whether or not it does, uh, you know, got to read the book to find that out. But <laughs> yeah, she, she was just one that was fun to play with. And I, I think it was her story, even though she's very much in the background kind of controlling things and making things happen and people are reacting to her. Um, she is kind of background and it was fun for me to kind of design a story where the villain isn't front and center all the time, but is yet always constant and always there and always prodding, always needling, but not, you know, one face off, one showdown after another. So it, it kind of helps attention build there. And it was really fun to create that in that aspect of it. So, yeah, I think the city and Celine were the, the two things that really blossomed into the book that it became. You, you mentioned, um, you know, the the antagonist the the bad guys if you mm -hmm. will um and and how much fun it is to um to kind of get lost in their story mm -hmm. um, why do you think that sometimes darker characters um antagonist uh, people that we think of as the villain um can be so much more um relatable to people you know than than uh, a protagonist can, um, you know, the, the, I, I can think of, you know, just dozens of, of bad guys that are more memorable than, uh, you know, the the protagonist that the story was supposed to be about. Um, mm -hmm. Why do you think that we connect um, with this type of character or uh, maybe the darker side of our own nature uh, connects with these characters? What do you think that is that draws us to them? I think it's because we're all broken in some way. We've all struggled in some way. We've suffered in some way. And we spend a lot of time as people hiding the cracks in our armor and trying desperately to fix them so that nobody else sees them. And the villains, the protagonists in, I mean, the antagonists in these stories tend to let it all hang out, you know, and, you know, all of the, the shattered parts of their past become, you know, part of their persona, part of who they are and what drives them. And, you know, we as, as people spend so much time trying to repress that, trying to hide that from the public that I think in some ways, maybe we wish deep down we could all do that. Just let that part of us show and not go through the effort to constantly be repairing that, you know, embrace that side of ourselves and just know that it is fully part of who we are instead of feeling like we always have to put on, you know, that, that game face and go into life prepared and, you know, not fragile and broken. And also the, the, the antagonists are doing the same thing in many ways. They're, they're letting that horrible side of them out, that, that broken side. But at the same time, they're, they're fighting for something, you know, fighting to get back something they feel like they've lost. And the protagonist is often just kind of either too perfect. And that's, that's really something that upsets me in books and, and movies and anything is when the protagonist just has no struggle, has no flaw. They're not believable. We all are too flawed to really relate to somebody that is got too much going for them and not enough to work for. So those great books are the ones where the protagonist has to overcome themselves as much as the antagonist. 
And then the antagonists that we relate to are often the ones that are as broken and flawed as we wish that protagonist would be, and yet struggle even harder to overcome that. And I mean, their goals are going to be different one and the other. You know, the protagonist is going to want one thing. The antagonist is going to want something else. But ultimately, they're both fighting for the same thing. And it's something they both want, something that they believe in. But how they go about it is different. The protagonist is the one that we understand is this is how we go through life. You know, we're covering up our own flaws. We're we're trying to get to this one thing that's going to make everything better. And the antagonist often just want vindication. They want justification for whatever wrong they feel they've suffered. And so often we feel like we've suffered wrongs, but we've not really gone after the right, you know, writing that wrong. We just accept the wrong and move on. But they fight for the, you know, they're they fight for the justice they believe they're deserved. And so there's not a whole lot of difference in protagonists and antagonists as much as the the drive for justice and what that difference in justice is. And we as people often don't don't fight for that. We we kind of accept that that was done to us. And especially in the South down here, it's like, well, you know, bless their heart. That's just the way that they are. And then we move <laughs> on and it's like we don't stand up and go, no. That was not okay. What you did to me was not okay. Right. And we don't do that. And you know, that's a cultural thing. And, and I think that's maybe secretly, especially Southerners, <laughs> that's why we like those villains, is because they are standing up and going, Oh no, no, honey, I don't think so. <laughs> and you know, we're not, we're not doing that. <laughs> Aren't you worried about being polite, like the protagonist? Yeah, I that side. I completely agree with you there. Um, but Nola, after writing a series um, with paranormal elements, magic, um, and now writing a series uh, that is more historically rooted and grounded and uh, does not include those uh, magical elements, shall we say, um, do you find one is easier to write than the other or uh, is it a different skill set? to write um, fantastical elements or not? Um, or, or do you do you think of uh, them as different things? Um, do do you approach research, those? It's the yeah. research that changes. It's the, definitely the research that changes. Um, writing Paranormal was a lot of fun for me because, like I said, I was always drawn to that magical side of New Orleans and fascinated by you know, the, the magic and the voodoo down there. And the research is different when you're doing things like researching historical fiction. I'm researching you know, how a sugar mill works for the historical fiction because they're reconstructing a sugar mill that's been ruined by a levee break. And so that's a very technical type of research. Researching for Crescent City series was kind of a mystical experience in its own way. Magic and especially voodoo is very hands-on. It's a very sensory experience. And so my researching for it had more to do with what I learned how to do, not what I learned about. And that was definitely more fun (laughs) to research is learning how to read tarot cards, learning how to do candle magic, how to carve a candle, how to dress a candle, um, having a seance to know what it was like. You know, with a friend of mine who's a medium and 
you know, working with some of the herbs and crushing the herbs and to know how they smelled and how that felt when you do it and being able to experience that research hands-on very tactily as opposed to pages in a book and, you know, looking online for things and then just, you know, the lots and lots of reading. So while they're very different, it's still research, but if given my choice, I would rather research by doing than research by reading. However, in college, I was a, I was an English and history double major. And so the historical fiction, even the researching of, of the more mundane things is still interesting to me. And I still find a lot of things that, you know, are hidden gems that I end up working into the writing simply because it was an interesting thing that I read during my research that I didn't know about. But I love that tactile hands on creative process of researching the magical side of things and the paranormal side of things that that made that book special. And my goal with it um, was to not Hollywoodize any of that. I didn't want the magic and the voodoo to be tainted in any way. The people of New Orleans take all of that very seriously. Um, it's special to them. It's faith to them. And just like I wouldn't sensationalize anyone's religion of, you know, I wouldn't sensationalize anyone out there. I don't want to sensationalize the voodoo either and what's important to them. And so it was very critical for me to make it authentic. And so that meant learning by doing and really getting in there and talking to people about their faith and what they do. And honestly, I think it makes a better story because when you look at the non-sensationalized version of things, you know, the voodoo and the magic that are in it, it's so close to believable that it makes it very, very easy for the reader to suspend their disbelief and and walk into it because it's it's doable. It's, you know, anyone can get those ingredients together and do that. You know, you don't require special talents. You don't require special tools. You don't require special powers to practice voodoo. And I think there's just something really cool about that and being able to research it in that way. So that's very different than researching regular historical fiction. It's still fascinating to me to learn about the past and how people did such amazing things without the technology that we're used to. And I mean, it's astounding what they were able to accomplish. And so there's there's an amazement in that as well. It's just different than the hands-on practice of researching the magic. And there's there's just uh, there's an authenticity that can only come from getting your hands dirty, so oh, to speak, is there? Absolutely. I mean, it, it is a very very much a sensory experience. Yeah. Um, doing those things, it's the you know I always say it's the curl of the wax as you are carving it like that's the pull that drag of the knife through the wax as you're you're carving that symbol or you know the smell when you first run that mortar and pestle and you know all of the herbs release that fragrance there's something in that that you can't capture without actually doing it and it's hard to put into words you don't it's hard to find the right words unless you've actually done it Gotcha. The newest book is a Crescent City Sin. It's the mm-hmm. second book in the Crescent City series. And what's what's the title of the new series coming out soon? 
And I have two new series actually coming out. The other New Orleans series is the Sylvie series. The first book is Sylvie's Pen. And then we actually go into some modern fantasy with some more history in it. It's a series that starts with a book called Traveler. It's the Traveler series. And it's about a 20-something young lady who is, I always, I call her, um, if you know, Anthony Bourdain was a 20-something-year-old chick. That's the main character of that book. She is snarky. She is kind of lost. She's a travel writer and she goes to explore the world, but she does it. She's kind of cynical about the whole thing. But, you know, she's she's going to research some historical locations and finds out that history has a bone to pick with her. And so we learn a lot more about history as she comes in contact with some monuments. So that's got some fantasy in it and a little bit of paranormal as she is yanked back into some memories of some past lives as she tries to discover her own destiny. So that one is a bit more modern fantasy than the historical fantasy of the Crescent City series. But Sylvia's Pen and Traveler are the first books in the next two series that are coming out in the spring. Excellent. We'll keep a watch out for them. Uh, Nola, if people are just learning about you and want to dig into all the great stuff that you do, where can they find you online? Facebook is always a great place or Instagram. Uh, Facebook, I have a Facebook group called Nola's Second Line, and we do a lot of fun things over there. I also on Nola's Second Line and the right review on Facebook, um, I do a live author talk kind of talk variety show. It's like a if you know, a Facebook live show was a late night show. <laughs> That's what we do. It's called the second line show. And I host and I have some great help from my friend, Annie McDonald, who produces the show for me. And we talk to authors every Wednesday night and we talk writing and we're just kind of a laid back group of folks before ourselves a glass of wine. And we talk about books and it's a lot of fun. So check that out. Nola Nash Entertainment on YouTube is where some past episodes of the Second Line show live. So you can kind of see what it's all about before watching there. And it is broadcast live on YouTube as well. And then Instagram at Nola Nash Writes. And I post all kinds of pictures about my precious puppy that I absolutely <laughs> love, Dudley. And, you know, I think he's got more fans than I do, honestly. <laughs> That's the way it always works. That's the way it always works. <laughs> it is. Uh, Nola, this has been so much fun chatting. Thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. This is a blast. Both Barrels Publishing is the brainchild of successful indie author James P. Sumner. He has self-published over 15 titles in the last five years and has over 800,000 downloads so far in his career, meaning he has a wealth of knowledge and experience to share with the indie publishing community. Knowing the struggles of the modern-day indie author as well as he does, he wanted to create a platform that would allow writers of any level to learn the ropes, navigate the pitfalls, and produce a professional novel without wasting time or money in the process. Both Barrels Publishing is the perfect one-stop shop for any indie author, combining James's expertise with his own team of editors and designers so you can help your novel realize its full potential and learn how to publish yourself. The purpose of Both Barrels Publishing is to help indie authors get their novels ready for publication without all the stress, hassle, and unnecessary expense. We want to make your lives easier, which is why we're giving you access to a top-notch team to publish your novels, along with a generous discount on their services. You can also work one-on-one -on -one with James to learn the intricacies of self-publishing. No hidden costs, no false promises. 
We simply want you to publish the best version of your novel. BothBarrelsPublishing.com